Coming up this week on the Legislative Gazette, we speak with New York Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado about the hate and bias prevention unit that he is leading. I'm Jim Lavoulis in for David Gustina. Also, we sit down with the special agent in charge of the Internal Revenue Service's Criminal Investigation New York Field Office. All coming up on the Legislative Gazette. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Antonio Delgado has been New York's lieutenant governor for just over a year. The Democrat, who was representing the state's 19th district in Congress at the time, filled a role vacated by Brian Benjamin, who resigned after being indicted on federal wire fraud and bribery charges. Those charges were dropped in a decision prosecutors are appealing. Elected to a full term with Governor Kathy Hochul in November, Delgado sat down with New York Now's Dan Clark to discuss his work so far and what he's focusing on, specifically the hate and bias prevention unit that he's leading. If I had to cut out two narratives that I've been sort of really using as platforms to get around the state, one would be through my work as chair of the hate and bias prevention unit. Uh, and the other is I've been traveling with the Division of Criminal Justice Services as mm -hmm. they do their 15-city tour. Uh, working with community partners to better understand some of the social determinants uh, of health and, and well-being and, and, um, and crime and, and what are those aspects that we need to be wrestling with to prevent those dynamics. So those are the two spaces along with being the chair of the REDCs, right? And so right. whether it's an economic lens or whether it's um, a, a enrichment lens where we're empowering communities from the ground up, that has been the entry point. So you might imagine that my conversations are really being informed by advocates on the ground who are dedicated to this work, who are working to provide services to communities, whether it's in the housing space, whether it's um, in the healthcare space, in the educational space, in the economic space. Uh, these are all lanes that I have been able to engage with and get a better understanding and try to figure out how folks on the ground are doing the work and are they being supported in, in a way that can truly maximize the value that they bring to bear. You know, let's talk about the Hate and Bias Prevention Unit. This is a unit within the Division of Human Rights. Yes. You're leading it. There are also regional um, yes. regional groups, I guess. I don't know what they're called. Councils. Yes. Uh, can you, it might seem obvious, but what's the work intended to do of those councils? So a lot of the work around hate and bias up to this point, I think, has typically been about reacting. There's a, a horrible incident or tragedy that occurs and then the community rallies around it and figures out a way to sort of react to that, whether it's in the criminal side or whether it's just in the healing side from yeah. the victim standpoint. Um, and we want to be more intentional, more forward-leaning, more proactive in how do we create an atmosphere that is more collective uh, and rooted in compassion and understanding and tolerance. And that means identifying partners on the ground across the state on a regional basis that are dedicated to coming together consistently to think about how to engage their community mm -hmm. in any number of uh, endeavors. It could be as simple as creating spaces for constructive dialogue. 
Um, it could also be more concrete, formal events that bring together opportunities to work through challenging issues or just to come together in fellowship and build a sense of community. I think we all know that we're living in very divisive times where hate is being normalized. Yes. And I think it's incumbent upon us to normalize love again, to, to uplift love again, and to make sure that we understand how powerful love actually is. No one's born to hate. That is a learned behavior. It is taught, as Nelson Mandela once said, you know, love is natural. We're born loving. And I think it's incumbent upon us to, to do the work on the ground to bring that together. So this is a statewide effort. I, I can't tell you how humbled I am to be the chair of, of these councils. There are 10 councils all across the state. We've met now with eight of the 10. I think mm -hmm. we still have to do the North Country and, and Western New York. Um, those are our two last regions, but by the end of hopefully the next couple of weeks, we'll have a month or so, we'll have introduced and met with all 10 councils. And then each of those councils will, in their own way, begin to engage uh, with their communities. This is something that is so difficult for me to even think about because I feel like it's something that we shouldn't need. You know, as you were saying, we shouldn't need people to come up with plans to prevent bias and hate and things like that. We're living in such divisive times. You're going around to all of these councils and talking to a lot of people. I'm wondering, do you see any common trends mm -hmm. among either uh, the hate and bias in their areas or how they're responding? Well, I, I want to say to the point about something that we shouldn't need. I can understand why intuitively you might think that, but when you think about the way we are sharing information or not, you think about the echo chambers of misinformation and manipulation and the rabbit holes that people can fall down now so easily in ways that they might not have been decades ago. Yes. You think about how conspiracy theories now that were once really on the margins, way, way out now, can catch fire on the Internet and become normalized in a heartbeat. These are the realities that we're dealing with today that make it very incumbent upon all of us to be a lot more intentional. Uh, about this work and not take it for granted that our better angels will always come to the surface because there are structural realities now that I think really impede that. And we have folks out there who rather demagogue uh, and who rather be divisive in their rhetoric in order to sort of uh, assume power for them for themselves as a result. So this is the challenge that, that we face. But to answer your question, the thread is that I think people, despite all those challenges, right, despite those structural realities, I think people are thirsty for authenticity and genuineness and, and being able to disagree, but agreeably. Yeah. More often than not, people want to feel okay saying what they, what they mean and knowing that they won't be judged uh, because they want to come from the right place. Mm -hmm. But we have to create those environments. We have to create opportunities for folks to make mistakes, to maybe say the wrong thing, but, but in the name of getting to a better outcome. Yes. Right? And I, I think the more we can, we can create that kind of environment, uh, the less people will run to their corners or clam up or dig their heels in or be rigid in their points of view. It's incumbent for all of us, no matter what side of the political spectrum you come from, that we go into the conversation with an open mind and instead of with arms closed, arms extended. I think that, that has to be the work that we do moving forward because otherwise all these other issues that are very, very complicated are going to be challenging to solve. New York Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado speaking with New York Now's Dan Clark.
You're listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm Jim Lavoulis, in for David Gustina. An organization responsible for identifying $5.7 billion worth of tax fraud in 2022 is one of the lesser-known federal law enforcement agencies. The Internal Revenue Service's Criminal Investigation Division has more than 2,000 special agents and roughly 1,000 professional staff, making it the sixth-largest federal law enforcement agency in the U.S. It's the only one authorized to investigate federal criminal tax violations. The New York field office, responsible for the entire state, is led by special agent in charge Tom Fatteruso. The Capital Region native stopped by WAMC's studios to detail his agency's work and his path to the job. It was a long journey to get here. I've been in the role uh, for two years now. The first year I was in an acting capacity. Uh, it took about a year to get certified into the uh, SES or the executive uh, division, right? because that goes through. It's a federal process you know, where you have to go through to get certified and there's interviews and so on and so forth and writing and, you know, the, there's a whole pro- procedure to, to become a, an executive in the federal government. Uh, once I cleared those hurdles, I became an executive around March of 2022. So I've been in the, the official SAC of New York uh, since 2022 in March. What's your professional background that led you to this, this point in your career? I have a varied background. Uh, I'm a local product, so I was, uh, I was, although I was born downstate, I spent majority of my life uh, in upstate New York uh, in Winnetskill. Uh, I went to LaSalle Institute for high school. I went to Hudson Valley. I received an associate's degree in criminal justice from Hudson Valley. And I went to the College of St. Rose to get my bachelor's degree in accounting. So I have an accounting background. Uh, I worked at Verizon uh, for several years, uh, right out of, um, out of Hudson Valley. And when I received my bachelor's degree, I decided I wanted a master's degree also, so I went to the University of Notre Dame, received a master's degree in accounting. Uh, From there, I worked at KPMG in Albany for about four years, and I was fortunate enough to get a position as a special agent uh, with IRS criminal investigation in 2004 in Albany. So I worked in Albany for for many years Uh, as an agent. I became a supervisor in Albany. Uh, then I became an assistant special agent in charge for the entire field office, again, sitting in Albany. At that time, it was time to move on. Uh, I moved to Washington, D.C., uh, took over a program in Washington, D.C. It was our undercover program, so I ran the undercover program for the agency for about two years. I became the special agent in charge of the Philadelphia field office after that in 2020. And in 2021, as I said, I was fortunate enough to become the acting SAC in New York. Turning to the IRS CI, Criminal Investigation Unit, I'm sure this is a, a kind of an open-ended question in the sense, but what are the main functions of the IRS CI? CI's main function is to investigate potential criminal, investi- or criminal allegations of tax fraud. Uh, but we also investigate uh, numerous other financial crimes. So what I tell people that to make it the easiest, if it has to do with money, we follow the money and we investigate the crime. You mentioned a little bit of your background, that you have accounting experience, you have uh, private sector experience. Is that typical for your, your coworkers in, in the IRSCI to have that financial background? 
in addition to the the law enforcement part that's necessary? Yes. We all have some financial background, whether it's uh, an accounting degree, which the vast majority of us have uh, a degree in accounting, or work experience in the financial investigation realm. Uh, Some we take right out of college, so they graduate and we pick them up as a special agent. We send them to the training academy for 27 weeks uh, at Fletzy in Glencoe, Georgia. And then they come back and they have an on-job instructor that works them through uh, getting them trained in the street and on the field. Uh, and then they become a full-fledged special agent. Uh, some people work, like myself, I've worked for a number of years before I became a special agent. Uh, and I had the, the background, the experience, and the education to go with it. So it, it varies from, from person to person. But we all get the same training when we go to the academy and we come out and we get the same field training. And, you know, it, it's, it's been successful so far. I understand the IRS CI works a lot with other federal law enforcement agencies. How exactly might those partnerships work out when it comes to, say, maybe the DEA or ATF? Those partnerships are valuable uh, because not every agency has the resources they need to do their job. So if you look at IRS CI, we follow the money. We're the, the best financial investigators on the planet, hands down. There's nobody better. Uh, the DEA, their specialty, uh, obviously, is narcotics. Uh, when you partner us together, it works because now you have an agency that is, uh, their specialty is investigating narcotic trafficking, and then you have an agency that's investigating where the money goes and where it comes from. So our specialty in the narcotics world is following money laundering, following where the money goes. We look at it as a business. So you have the cartels that are Uh, making narcotics, they're shipping it to the United States, they're selling it in the streets, and then all of a sudden they have cash because, you know, not taking credit cards or checks for for narcotic sales. Uh, So there's a a load of cash that they need to get rid of. It's not easy to get rid of cash. So it's our job to find out where the cash is and where it's going, how people are getting paid, and how they're transporting that. Because, like I said, it's hard to transport uh, loads of cash. So that's where our expertise comes in. Uh, Same thing with ATF. So ATF is... Their specialty, uh, as their name implies, is uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. Uh, again, we follow the money. So they, we partner. Um, they're great at locating, uh, whether it's illegal weapons, fire, or, uh, explosives, or whatever the case may be. And then we try to track the organizations. So our job is, it doesn't stop when an arrest is made. So for example, if there's an, a narcotics arrest, that doesn't mean the case is over. We're trying to find out who's supporting the organization, how the organization is structured, because there's somebody sitting at the top. And our job is to find that person sitting at the top and take that person down. Because if you cut the head off the snake, then the the whole body dies. So if you cut the head off the organization, then the hope is that organization dies. If somebody else steps up to take over in that organization, then we try to locate that person and take them down too. Looking through the, the notes on the IRS CI, uh, noted that it has an undercover unit, and I was wondering how that might look different than what most people might think of when they think of a law enforcement undercover unit in that the sense that you mentioned, you're looking at the cash, at the finances. That seems to me very, very ingrained undercover. Can you detail what that undercover unit might entail? I can, without giving up too much of our secret. I'd be happy to talk about it because I ran the program for two years out of headquarters. So I'm very familiar with it. I was an undercover agent myself. 
So I worked in an undercover capacity for a few years as an agent. And it's a very interesting uh, job. That's probably one of the jobs in federal law enforcement that's similar to what you may see uh, on TV or in the movies, right? It's not exact, right? You know, there has to be a story to tell and it has to be interesting. But it's probably one of the closest things there is uh, to what you see. Uh, so as far as IRS criminal investigation undercover agents go, our specialty, again, is finance and money. So that's what we pose as. We pose as financers. We pose as uh, money people. We pose as uh, those who can take your cash and help you make it look legitimate to wash it, and hence money laundering. So we help people to clean their cash. Uh, that helps us find out where the money's coming from, where it's going to, and then we can lay out the organization, and then when it's time to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice to receive indictments. Uh, we have a case put together. It's a solid case. Uh, we can get indictments and make arrests. You mentioned a lot of this activity that, uh, that your agency is involved in looking into and investigating involves cash, but our world has been shifting to more uh, finance that is based in the, in the digital world, connected to the Internet, and then the addition of cryptocurrency. I wonder if those developments have made it harder or easier when it comes to your investigations in terms of is there more of a, of a record to follow? Thinking back, you know, uh, decades, if you didn't have the cash or maybe the paper records, um, maybe you were out of luck. But now the digital traces that might exist, how has that impacted the work that your agency does? Digital currency has been interesting, but the way we look at it in IRS criminal investigation, it's another way to move money. And since we're already experts in financial investigations and the movement of money, it, it's a learning curve for us, but it hasn't been as big of a learning curve as you may think, uh, because it, all it is is following the money. And as you mentioned, you know, there's the blockchain, right? You can see where transactions occur, although they could be complicated and people could split up uh, for example, a Bitcoin. They can break it up in several different ways and send it to different wallets and, and send it to different places, but we can track that. We have people that are experts in that field. So it's just a different means for us to follow the money. It's it's nothing different than when we were following cash in our early days. We're a 100-year-old uh, agency. You know, We started in 1919. Uh, we started tracking money then, whether we were tracking cash, then maybe we were tracking checks or wire transfers at some point. Now it's cryptocurrency. It's just another method for people to move money. Uh, we learn how to do it. We become experts in it. And I wouldn't say it's easier or harder. It's just different. So this type of thing is incorporated in the updated training, ongoing training that current and future agents would receive. Absolutely. It's not only updating the training, it's it's changed our recruiting. So as we're out in the colleges and and different conferences trying to recruit people to come and work for us, we ask about crypto or, or cyber. Do you have that experience? Can you help us you know, maybe stand up our own uh, cyber unit, which we did in the, in the New York field office within the last year? I have uh, an seven, agents, seven or eight agents with a supervisor, and that's all they do are crypto and cyber-related crimes. Uh, so that's what they investigate all day long, and that's who we recruit. And if someone comes to us and we interview them and they have a, a great background in, in cyber or crypto, then we'll put them into that crypto unit. The IRS overall was, was a part of this recent debt ceiling deal uh, in Washington. 
As part of the agreement, $1.4 billion for the IRS that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed in 2022 was rescinded. Additionally, the debt deal removed $20 billion from the IRS over the next two years to divert those funds. Uh, there were plans to spend that money from the Inflation Reduction Act to improve operations, invest in new technology, hire more uh, customer service reps, and expand the agency's ability to audit the high-wealth taxpayers. Now those, those spending cuts have been nixed. What impact might that have? Speaking from my position, uh, I would say that we are just doing business as usual. Uh, we get our funding stream uh, that's sent to CI. We're, CI is a very small part of the IRS as a whole. We're only about 3% of the entire IRS organization. Uh, so we get our funding stream from Maine IRS. Uh, whatever that funding stream may be, we work around that. Uh, you know, We're still hiring right now, as a matter of fact. We're hiring agents as we speak, uh, to, and that's to backfill the agents that have retired over the last several years. You know, our attrition has been um, has been large over the last several years, and we lost uh, at least 1,000 agents over the last 10 years. So we're just trying to backfill them just to get to the level where we were 10 years ago. Uh, so we don't try to concern ourselves with the funding portion. I get a budget. I work within that budget, and, uh, and I do the best I can with, with what I have. You noted those staffing uh, reductions in the mid-1990s, according to the IRS-CIA. Uh, staffing was more than 5,000. Today, it's just over 3,000. You know, you've been with the, the agency since 2004, so you've kind of been in, in the middle uh, of that. Uh, what sort of impacts has that had on the, the amount of investigations, the amount of work the agency is able to do? It does have an impact. So right now, as you mentioned, we're about 3,000 total in the agency, but that's about 2,000 special agents. So those are sworn law enforcement officers. Out of that, you have to take the managers out of that who don't conduct investigations. So we're about 1,800, 1,900 working uh, investigators out in the field. So if, it, of course, it's going to have an impact because an investigator can only work so many cases. You can't overload a special agent with, with cases that are complex uh, you know, our our cases could take 18 months to two years to complete. So you can't you can't have you know, 20, 30 cases in inventory at the same time. Uh, you'll never get them all done. Uh, so we just we try to work as best we can. We try to use force multipliers like using other agencies, and we're partnering with other agencies, not just federal agencies, state and local agencies also. Uh, you know, we we work with uh, we have task force officers that we bring on from state and local agencies, uh, police officers that, that come and sit with us. We deputize them, and they work financial investigations alongside us. Uh, and I've seen it throughout my career. There's been ups and downs. So it, it, there's always an ebb and a flow uh, within a, and not just in the federal government, with, with any job. You know, there's hiring, there's freezes, there's layoffs. Um, you know, we just, again, we just work through it the best we can and do the best job we can. The, the taxpayer pay our salary. And we want to give them the best return on their investment that we can. I mentioned the debt ceiling debate, um, and the IRS was a part of that. Part of that that funding debate for the IRS uh, included um, members of the IRS, investigators, becoming the target of, I think it's fair to say, political attacks. Has there been any reaction within the agency to to hearing that out in the in the public? The only. The only thing that we really want to let the public know is there's no push to hire 87,000 armed agents. It's, 
it it could it couldn't happen. It's it's impossible. There's only you know eighty to one hundred thousand people that work at the IRS to begin with. As I mentioned earlier, there's only a few thousand people that are sworn law enforcement officers that officers that are authorized to carry weapons. Our agency has never swelled beyond uh, you know four or five five thousand employees in total, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so the the push we don't have the capacity for that for that many. So the people that are being hired that will be issued a weapon and a badge are those that are uh, what we call 1811s, which is the the federal um, uh, code for a law enforcement officer. So an FBI agent is an, an 1811. Uh, you know, DEA special agent is an 1811. IRS special agent 1811. So we can only hire so many to begin with. And again, they are sworn law enforcement officers uh, who are highly trained. Uh, they spent, like as I said, they spent 27 weeks learning how to be not just a law enforcement officer, but how to conduct financial investigations. Uh, so that's where we're trying to get the message out that, you know, we're just looking to, to backfill our ranks, uh, to get people uh, on the payroll and an investigative role that can go out and look for people that are committing egregious financial crimes, whether it be a tax crime or a money laundering crime or maybe a Bank Secrecy Act crime, which we have authority over. But we are the only federal agency that are authorized to investigate tax crimes. There's no other agency out there that can do it. So if we shrink, then the amount of people that uh, may want to take a chance and willfully cheat on their taxes increases because there's no enforcement. I think it's fair to say that IRS criminal investigation, one of the lesser known of the federal law enforcement agencies, in your mind, is that good or bad or both? You know, we've flown under the radar, I think, for quite some time. Uh, and I think we realized that if you look at if you look at any financial crime that's out there, you know, you see the you see the same agencies sometimes, right? Uh, that are maybe mentioned, or and and our agents are always there. If if it has to do with money, you can pretty much guarantee our agents are probably somewhere on that investigation. But I think we realized in the last few years it's better to maybe publicize. So, you know, we're not trying to go overboard, but we are trying to get our name out there. So we've hired people like my public affairs officer here uh, that that get us to do interviews like this or to get us in the paper or to get us in the media just to highlight, highlight what we do as an agency, what our agents are out there working on, to maybe dispel some of the things that people know or don't know about us, that, uh, okay, they're going after people that are really egregious. And and when you think about it, the people that are cheating on their taxes in, in a willful way, in a major way that rise to the level of criminality, are not stealing from the IRS. They're not stealing from the government. They're stealing from all of us because somebody has to make up that difference in the tax gap. And the people that make that up are the honest taxpayers who pay their taxes on time every year and do it the right way. Um, so we're trying to, to get that message out there that, you know, we you pay us and we're here to protect your money and to protect your finances. You know, things that, that get paid for, um, Social Security or, you know, whatever federal program is out there, that's paid by the taxes that come in uh, through the federal taxation system to, through the IRS. If people are willfully avoiding that, or I shouldn't say avoiding, people are willfully evading that, that obligation, then it's taking away from those programs. Tom Federuso is the special agent in charge of the IRS Criminal Investigations Field Office in New York. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here.
And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2326. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jim Lavoulis.